How can the church help men to embrace their vocations as husbands and fathers and to become the men God is calling them to be? Today we're going to discuss that question with Mark Hartfield, the National Director of the Men's Ministry, That Man Is You. I'm Father Dave Pavonk and I'm the President of Franciscan University of Steubenville. And you're watching Franciscan University Presents. I invite you to stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Father Dave Pavanka, President of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. And today we're going to be talking about becoming a man after God's own heart. I'm joined by our regular panelists, Dr. Regis Martin. Yeah. Welcome. It's nice to have yeah. you this morning. Yeah. Good. And Dr. Scott Hahn. Blessings. We have a special guest today, and that is Mark Harfield. Mark is the National Program Director of That Man Is You and the Vice President of Paradisis Dei which is a lay apostolate dedicated to helping families discover God's abundant grace within marriage and family life. He's written a number of books and all kinds of other things. It's great to have you with us, Mark. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. No, no, it's, it's great. When we were looking at a possibility of having you come and you were willing to come just actually on short notice, it's a great blessing. Yeah, and next to the Paradisus Day and that man is you, Franciscan has my heart. It's, oh, that's I, great. These are two of my professors that's and great. one of my favorite priests. That's so. great. Honored to be on the stage. It's a great blessing. Welcome back home. Yeah, Thank exactly. You. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you know, we're just excited about the topic today in, in men's ministry and the state of men in the church and in the world and basically just thoughts as, as we begin this whole conversation. Yeah, I, I immediately think to Malachi, I will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And I do believe we're seeing an uptick in an awareness of men's ministry, especially here in the United States. Um, when we started this 15 years ago, there was nothing going on, especially at the parish level. Uh, when we started That Man Is You, men's group, in people's mind and their paradigm, it's like eight guys sitting around and we started That Man Is You and we're getting 50, 100, 150 men showing up on a Wednesday morning or Friday morning. And at what time? Yeah, we're 6 a.m. Or yeah. Saturday morning. It's Saturday. My father, my father does yes. 6 a.m. And so when guys consider that the highlight of their week, you know the Holy Spirit's at work. And now there's men's ministries popping up all over the place. And so there's an uptick. Nonetheless, um, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, yeah. We have a long way to go in this, in this uh, you know, the, the harvest is plentiful. Amen, amen. I, I would think that if a guy can be there at 6 a.m., that's a gesture of such heroism that they're already men after God's heart. Uh, they don't need to be catechized. <laughs> they do what need can to you be add? catechized. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, the, that's a, a huge topic, but um, absolutely, I think we get that and some people would think, okay, you're just going to get the choir who shows up for this thing. That's yeah. not true. Mm. Uh, and we get the guy who's thinking more about football on Sunday Mass yeah. than, you know, I think Dr. Han used to say Joe six-pack in, right. the, in the pew. I remember that term. Right. Um, but those guys come, and a lot of times they're not catechized at all. Yeah. Um, and we teach them the gospel message and give them this vision of manhood. Uh, we can get into that here in a little yeah. bit, but it includes fatherhood. It includes uh, yeah. being a sacrificial for your spouse. Yeah. But, you know, I think it's the experience or the desire for fraternity. 
Mm. You know, the, yeah. the fraternity is the magnet that it draws these men at 6 a.m., whether it's Wednesday or Saturday morning, because that's sort of the back door into discovering divine sonship. Mm. You know, you advertise divine sonship, you might have some guy who comes to cook, and that's all. <laughs> but I would also say that, you know, just seeing it around the country as I have encountered it, mm. uh, that man as you is powerful. Uh, the Denver Hans, my son Gabriel out there, you know, would tell me about it, and the, the large numbers that would come, mm. but also the deep effect. Mm. One other thought, you know, you look back on the last 15 years, but you know, really you could go back about 25 years. The last quarter of a century to echo Dickens has been like the, the best of times and the worst of times with pornography on the internet and all of the things that debase men and make them beasts. On the other hand, you go back to the 90s and you have promise keepers, you have covenant keepers, mm -hmm. you have the beginning of a men's movement that is really calling them back to the heart of God the mm -hmm. Father. Mm -hmm. and, and so to see this, I think in some ways, is 3.0 or 4, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and it's exciting to see it continue to grow. And, and you nailed it with fraternity. Yeah. I mean, I've been saying that recently. This, it's the secret sauce of that, man, is you, yes, we have great content. I mean, I would, I, I told Steve this, he's our founder the other day, like I would live the rest of my life spreading this content. I think it's worthy. Uh, it's a powerful message. Nonetheless, without the small groups and without the fraternity, oh, yeah. there's a missing piece. And so we've, um, decided from the very outset that we were going to partner with Parish specifically to bring that fraternity. Right. So we don't even let our content out, like just for the guy to consume yeah. it at home by himself, which that's fine. That's well, a great is, is that the, uh, the distinctive Catholic note? Uh, uh, you, you mentioned that the origins of this trace back to maybe the 90s with Promise Keepers, and that was a Protestant movement. So what, what optional extra do you add? Is it the parish component? Yeah, ours didn't start with Promise Keepers, but it actually, we did have in Houston, a, it was called Men's Life, which was a Protestant program, and there was hundreds of guys gathering, and we discovered a third of those men, when they surveyed them, they were Catholic. I see. And um, one of Steve's friends approached him and said, you need to start a men's program. And he was like, no, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm all about marriage and the family. Said, you need to start a men's program. You don't understand. Yeah. Finally, he starts it. Um, and what we discovered is the men are hungry and thirsty for this. At the parish that we started it at, they all said no one was going to show up. Every priest on staff, everyone on staff said, right. oh, sure, you can have the hall at 5.30, 6 in the morning. There's going to be nobody there. 124 guys walked right. in the door. But there's a reason one. you do it at 6.30 in the morning. They're the Yeah. It's not taking away from their family time. Exactly. They have, exactly. They and have that's to what's sacrifice. So, I think that's so, so beautiful about that. They got to sacrifice just, one hour The of hall sleep. is available. Right. right. Right, because if we did it in the evening, yeah. we're contradicting our whole entire message yeah. to them, yeah. which is go home and be with your family at night, right? Yeah. right? Come home from work and, and be with your family. And if it's something you find value in, yeah. then you can make the sacrifice of one hour of sleep. The hardest thing is getting the guy in the door. So yeah. we don't necessarily advertise a 26-week program. We just say, come <laughs> once or twice. Yeah. <laughs> and but, but by the way, it's six yeah. years, and we're working on year seven. We don't tell them any of that. Right. Um, we just say, just try it out. Um, and if you like it, and there's a great group of guys yeah. uh, that are going to be there, and the coffee's good yeah. and all that stuff. And I think if, if, if we were to discover what that hunger is, it is yeah. for relationship. I mean, what's mm -hmm. going to bring them the first couple of times? It's the relationship. It's being with people that they can be honest with. And that's why I just love the program that you're doing is that it creates an environment. The content is excellent, but it's the environment ultimately that that's, keeps them coming back and keeps them, their hearts being changed. You know, from early ages, 
men are competitive and by mm -hmm. nature, you know. And so in the business world, you have your sword ready, you know, because you're going to encounter competition, not only outside in the marketplace, but even inside in terms of promotion. So to create an environment where there really is fraternity, mm. where there is friendship, you know, statistics show that most men, by the time they reach their late 30s and early 40s, really have either no friends yeah. or only one or two, and they're usually college buddies and they live far apart. Yeah. And so to have fraternity is just another way of saying male friendship that is not strictly competitive. Mm -hmm. right. And it creates the conditions of possibility for flourishing, and not just socially and emotionally, but spiritually and theologically. And, you know, Steve, who founded this, mm -hmm. came up to visit years ago. And I'm thinking, that man is you, paradisus dei, and all of that. You know, it, it's a men's movement. And then three hours later, we were at Bob Evans. I'm like, this guy is <laughs> as deep as the ocean. He's professionally, I mean, he's a lay theologian, an amateur status, but amateur comes from one who loves amour, you know. Mm -hmm. And you also, you know, feed right into that vision in terms of the training you got here and the passion for your own family and for other brothers Thank in Christ. You. Yeah, I guess it, it grew out of a certain perceived uh, emptiness, uh, maybe that's a bit strong, mm. oh, uh, within existing Catholic structures. I mean, when you think of devout Catholic men who, who gravitate to the Mass, there really is a kind of anonymity uh, in that mm -hmm. uh, setting. I mean, you don't get chummy with the guy three pews away, right. especially with lockdown uh, in the COVID uh, context. But even if things were pretty healthy uh, out there, uh, you don't really fraternize with the guy that uh, you go to communion with. So you're providing something that's really missing uh, elsewhere. Absolutely. There's a, there's a study, the United States Medical Department psychiatry after World War II uh, studied the soldiers when they got back, and they said the single greatest contributing factor to their mental health in times of intense battle was the sustaining influence of the small group. Hmm. That they had this band of brothers, and this yeah. is in yeah. military war, but I don't think the analogy is that far, right? St. Paul calls us to be soldiers for Christ, yeah. fighting the good fight of faith. Yeah. And so, in that same, I mean, there's there's no such thing as a lone soldier that's going right, to survive. Right. There's no such thing as a lone Christian that's going to survive. You live in community. Mm. Um, you know, I think my first small group is my spouse and I. Right. I mean, I think that really is my first best friend and my first small group. But I need other small group as well. I need right, I need sure. men to uh, talk about things with, and um, I have a best friend that I, I do this with. But the, the that man is you small group is key. Uh, and if it's not that man as you, guys got to find it somewhere. Right. Um, and find and, other men walking this and that's a, journey with them. And that's just it, I think, that walking in the journey is that un unfortunately at times guys connect themselves with other guys that are not necessarily going where they want to be. Mm -hmm. So to be able to surround yourself with brothers who have the same desire. And that's one of the things I love is that you bring in at the beginning guys are not even, not even sure why they're there, they right? They they're And they begin to yeah. discuss and discover and it, it really changes their focus and what they're about. And then the content is is so key too because, you know, I I'm not going to make any judgment on any other church groups that are going on, but uh, and uh, many times when guys are left to the just just a small group and don't have a, a content or a method, men tend to uh, watch sports and and, and drink beer. Right. You know what I mean? And so I've heard from a lot of groups like this is what my small group is. We get around and we and and then and guys who are in that man as you go to those things and they're like, man, I kind of feel kind of empty. Like, when are we going to talk about God together? I enjoy the fellowship. Don't get me wrong. Like, yeah. it's, it's great to have a, have a beer with a friend. Um, but when are we going to talk about the faith? And so we provide that platform and give them a depth of content yeah. to then 
give them fodder to, to discuss and talk about their lives and talk about their families. So it is growth, but it's also accountability. Absolutely. Though, and that's what you have in a band of brothers. You know, and I also think of uh, Pastor Rick Warren of Saddleback right. in Southern right. California. And he's very Catholic friendly. And he's been at various Catholic conferences where we've gotten to know each other. And he, he says, you know, it doesn't matter to me how many people are there in church on Sunday morning, mm. as much, nearly as much as how many people are going to the small groups, especially the men, mm. because that's their spiritual life. That's the, you know, that's the impulse for spiritual growth in terms of prayer, study, accountability. And that kind of friendship is the only way that you can really be sure they're gonna to continue to grow. Yeah. Yeah, Mark, but you, you also made an allusion to it that from that group of men gathering, it's going to impact his family. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. You know, so to, to, to be able to speak to this, that it's not just his time, but this is going to impact the way he cares for his wife, mm -hmm. the type of father he is, his other relationships are really being formed in that. The greatest fans of that man is you are the wives. Yeah, the wives. <laughs> yeah. Their wives, they, they, they tell us, they're like, no, seriously. <laughs> You're helping, I don't know if he tells you, but yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Nothing works <laughs> like this. <laughs> yes. Nothing I say, at least. Yeah, um, yeah maybe he could get up even uh, another hour, yeah. <laughs> right, and do this every how, day. How, yeah, do you right. have this more days a week for right. him? What yeah. else can you do for him? How many now, cities are you in? Uh, well, easier to answer in terms of like, Parish. states and dioceses, okay. so 47 of the 50 states, 150 plus dioceses. Um, and they said no one would come, and now it's been over 100,000 yeah. men have joined. And what's key though, I think, what we wanna attract one day is small groups. Yeah. Just just like you said, it's, it's we're in 600 parish, 700 parishes right now. Uh, but one day we want to track by small group. We have about 3,000 small right, groups. I, see. So 3, I, I suppose it, it goes without saying that the institutional church is friendly. They're hospitable to this. I mean, you haven't encountered a lot of resistance, maybe incredulity. Do you really think you can pull this off? There's that for sure. Everyone yeah. meets it with that uh, skepticism. skepticism. Yeah. Uh, but then they have to see it, right? And that's one of the greatest ways to grow it is just bring someone in to show them, hey, there's 50 guys showing up here. Whoa. Okay, and then the neighbor parish starts it as well, but it's very friendly because we've definitively partnered with them. We're not trying to take the men out of the parish. Yeah. We're saying, no, we're going to do it at your local parish. You have to have your pastor's approval uh, to run it. He doesn't have to be involved. He doesn't have to spend any time, but he has to say yes. Well, isn't it sort of sadly instructive that if a, a pastor were to schedule a mass at 6 a.m., uh, he's likely to entice fewer people than what you've got going. Is it the coffee? <laughs> I mean, the Mass has the Eucharist, you know, Jesus is there, but these guys uh, are not interested. What is it? Uh, that, that's a whole nother topic. Um, <laughs> thanks be to God that we have Dr. Hahn explaining people about the Eucharist, yeah. who's actually in one of our That Man Is You programs, and that's why I invited him. I'm like, this is a time in the church, especially COVID, but even pre-COVID, that message of what the Eucharist is and what it means to our spiritual lives and how we need to be feeding off that, I think is more relevant now than ever before to get people back into our churches. And so what we do see from that man is you, the guys have a uptick in their participation oh, I see. Yeah. in daily mass. So that's being encouraged. Even in year one, we're already encouraging them go at least once a week in addition to Sunday. You oh, know what I mean? So we're, we're and if every day if you can, but yeah. we're trying to get them um, to have a devotion to the source and summit of our faith um, and to ultimately to feed off Christ himself. I think any good ministry, um, you're not necessarily, if you're not leading people to the sources of grace, yeah. then I don't think you're doing proper ministry, right? They shouldn't just be feeding off of 
our ministry. They should be feeding off the Eucharist, the Word of God. You've made that statement several times in the course of the discussion is that fellowship, the fraternity is one of the main things that bring them together, but the content is important as well. So um, the content. Stay with us. We've got much more to say about Franciscan University. When we come back, we'll talk about that content. Stay with us. I'm part of Martyrs of the King. Um, It's a household on campus. Um, Being part of this household, I found that I live out the the verse in Genesis, uh, man is not supposed to be alone. Um, that, that saying can be interpreted of having a spouse, but it can also be interpreted as having a virtuous brotherhood. And this virtuous brotherhood um, helps each member of the, the brotherhood to get to the ultimate goal, which is heaven. There is a place where education begins and faith and reason connect. Franciscan University of Steubenville's online programs will advance your career through an e-learning experience that's both academically excellent and passionately Catholic. With online degrees taught by full-time professors in theology, catechetics, business, education, and other disciplines, you can earn your master's degree online without changing your lifestyle. Find out more today at franciscan.edu, where your faith and career can connect online. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We're talking about becoming a man after God's own heart. And we talked to the first section a little bit about fraternity and fellowship and coming together, but it's always about content. If a man is going to come after the heart of God, if he's going to seek the heart of God, there has to be an object of that, something that he's seeking, something that he's searching for. Speak to that, just this desire to have God's heart. Yeah, I think it's, <laughs> it starts with an experience with the living God. I, I mean, I, th- I really think that unless you're leading p- people to an experience with, with uh, the living God, and it's called That Man Is You, Becoming a Man After God's Own Heart. And if you look at that title, it's all hidden in Scripture, but that's the story of King David. Yeah. Right? Yeah, one it, of my favorites. It's not, it doesn't begin with a man after God's own heart, but that's where it ends. But it, it begins with a, a, a man who um, sinned greatly, right? He had a wandering eye. He, we know the story. He sleeps with another man's wife. He, they have a child, Bathsheba. And then he adds uh, accomplice to murder enough, yeah. to an adulterous affair, has Uriah struck down at the front of the battle, pulls the army back. And God, who is merciful, sends the prophet Nathan to King David and says, King, judge this case for me. There's a rich man and a poor man. The poor man has this lone ewe lamb, but he loves it as his only daughter. The rich man steals the poor man's ewe lamb, slaughters it, gives it to his guests for a feast. King, what should be done? And and King David rises up in fury and he (laughs) says, as the Lord lives, that man should die. And Nathan says, King, that man is you. That man is you as an accusation. Um, You know, we're like, oh, that man is you. You should die. Yeah, that man is you as an accusation. And, and, And King David, thanks be to God, repents, right? We have some of the most beautiful words of repentance in all of Scripture. Psalm 51, the church turns to it during Lent. Um, So... King David's a man of repentance. Go you know, ahead. It strikes me that David responds as a man with a bad conscience because however awful it would be to slaughter that neighbor's mm-hmm. ewe lamb, it wouldn't be a capital offense in any law code, you know. But David reacts mm-hmm. because, you know, when you've got a bad conscience, you tend to kind of relocate the blame, you know. 
But that's precisely how the Holy Spirit works to leverage repentance, because once you realize, okay, that's me, oh, oh, there are no excuses, and I actually do deserve that much, much more. And, you know, so he becomes a man after God's own heart. Uh, But that passage in, what is it, 2 Samuel 12, 7, that man is you, you know, is one of those things that I think every man needs to hear. Absolutely. In order to say, not your fault, your most grievous fault, honey, but mine. And that is the message. You know, we have all these stories and we walk through all these stats, but at the end of the day, it's the gospel message, just the prophetic message that you, man, look in the mirror you've sinned, you've fallen short of the glory of God, you haven't lived up to the dignity uh, that you've been called to. And so you have to take personal responsibility for that action, not try to hide the sin, right. not be like Adam yeah. but um, or David, but take personal responsibility and, and embrace what you did and repent right. and be transformed. And then in Acts 13 we have, he's the only man in Scripture to be called a man yeah. after God's own yeah. heart because he would do all the will. The, that, that's of sort of flabbergasting, I, I think. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, yeah. I mean, here is this exquisite irony. You know, the king, the guy who arranges the murder, the execution mm. of a man whose wife he seduced, defiled, mm. uh, is a man after God's own heart. That singular tribute paid to him. And he was an awful man. Yeah, it's Dreadful. I, at various conferences and talks I've given, I, I begin with the character of David and mm. just say, who likes David? And just get a general sense. And everyone was like, yeah, we like him. <clears throat> and then you go through the list of things that David had done. Yeah. And, but it does say something about repentance mm. and the transformation of a person and that we not define somebody by their worst moment. Mm. And I think we have a tendency to do that. Yeah. You know, you could mention presidents and say, well, this, this, and we have this disdain towards him. Now, repentance was the key, right? right. That was at the heart <clears throat> of it. But you see that in, even in his brokenness and his sinfulness that he was still, and that's one of the things I love about David, he knew how to repent. Yes. You know, he knew how to repent. And that is the story. Yeah. It's a story of God's mercy, and, and that's that encounter that I'm talking about that we have to get put guys in touch with. They have to encounter the merciful love of the Father, right, in order to know how to become the merciful love right. of the Father yeah. to other people, which is ultimately where we're He's leading them. Son. Yeah. You know, that man doesn't deserve microscopic analysis in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. But when you look closely at the relationship between David and Uriah before the affair Mm. and before the plot to have him cut down in in battle, Uriah was a Hittite. Mm. So he was one of the clans of Canaan. And, you know, David had converted him to the God of Israel. And not only that, but Uriah was one of the most loyal lieutenants in his command, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, so the betrayal of trust yeah. is as yeah, deep yeah, yeah. as the ocean, and yet the repentance is even deeper in Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned, well, as well as Uriah, but, right. you know, I he's your That's Shakespeare's point, that the corruption of the best is mm-hmm. the worst corruption mm-hmm. of all. Mm-hmm. You know, the lily uh, that festers smells worse than any weed. I mean, David was the lily who now festers as a weed. But he's lifted up and placed uh, on a level higher even than he had enjoyed before that business. I'm I'm so struck by that comment you made, Father, that we ought not to define people Mm. by their worst moment. You know, if God defined us by our worst moment, since we all conspired to crucify him, we'd all be in hell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and God forbid we define ourselves 
by our own worst moment as well. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. And so um, it, it truly is this, this call to embrace the, the merciful love of God and to learn about the Father. And then I think that's where we should maybe lead next is then becoming that manifestation of God the Father. John Paul II said that men relive and reveal on earth the very fatherhood of God. Yeah. Oh. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a high I, calling. You know, there's something that just struck me. Um, so you're looking at him at his worst moment, but when you trace his life up until 2 Samuel 12, mm -hmm. I mean, he was a shepherd when he was first called and anointed by Samuel. He was a loyal servant in King Saul's court. Even when King Saul became enraged and demonic towards murdering him, and then he's a foot soldier who and a leader who completes the conquest of the promised land by 2 Samuel 5 and 6 to get the covenant that God announces through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 7. And, you know, the, the request that David had made of the prophet Nathan was, ask God for permission for me to build him a house. Yeah. And Nathan says, well, of course you can. And then he comes back and says, no, actually, the word of the <laughs> Lord is actually, you won't, but your son will. Mm. And you'd half expect David to say, oh, shucks, what a disappointment. But from verse 13 all the way through 19, he explodes with joy. It's as though it's more fulfilling to him to see his son get mm. to do everything the old man always wanted to do. Mm. That's where you see a man after God's own heart. Because God. God the Father is not threatened by the exaltation of his son. He is precisely glorified in that moment. And so you see a father's heart, mm. you know, and it's the only, well, it's the first time in scripture where an individual Israelite is identified as a son of God. Mm. And, you know, I will be his father and he will be my son there in 12 to 14. And, you know, that father-son relationship is precisely what the father of lies targeted mm. and destroyed with Adam and God and then everything since then with Abel and Cain. And so I, I don't think we... You know, we, we got to get beyond the pious gloss of a man after God's own heart, you know, right. and say, actually, it's, it's a lot tougher, and yet it's also a lot closer to us. It's more accessible. Mm -hmm. We don't have to become the king. We just have to realize that God is the king and we're his mm -hmm. beloved son. Yeah. And, and I think part of that is to learn what it is to be a son. Yeah. And, yeah. and to be able to have that relationship with the father, does, Paul says in Romans about, the, the Spirit comes upon us and we cry out, Abba, Father. And, and what we cry out is this relationship between mm -hmm. a father and a son. And I'm sure part of the, the work that you're doing is just that and trying to bring healing in, yeah. in fathers who don't know what it is to be a father and don't know what it was to be really a good son and being able to spend time with that. Yeah, you, <laughs> we, we make this transition. So King David's a man after God's own heart, but then we actually kind of show them Maybe the ultimate man after God's own heart, besides Jesus himself, mm -hmm. who's the revelation of the Father, is Saint Joseph. Right. Amen. Uh, right. Oh, yeah. And you have in that in that second or in that uh, quote from Acts, it says, "Who would do all of my will?" Well, who's the man in the New Testament who always did right. the will of the Father? Yeah. It's Saint Joseph. Every time we, he never speaks a word, so he, he has his humility is exuding. Right. Mm -hmm. His silence is is um, loud. Right. But every time we find him, it's the Annunciation of St. Joseph, the flight into Egypt, the, the pathway back to Israel and then to Nazareth. In every case, we have, you know, the angel appearing to him, speaking to him. He listens, Obedience. he's obedient, mm -hmm. and then he acts. Right. And I think that action is key. And I, I think men sometimes, <clears throat> they don't necessarily make the connection between 
a sacred silence and an obedience. They think that's more passive or, or weak or meek or something that is a misconstrued idea of what that looks like. But I think silence and prayer and obedience leads to action, mm-hmm. like very definitive action yeah. and God's action, right? Yeah. Um, and that's what we find Joseph doing. And so Joseph is actually hidden. He's not as explicit as David in that man as you, sure. but he is the man behind that man as you. And he's, Scripture reveals him as just man before God, spouse of Mary, father of Jesus. Yeah. Those are our first three years. Right. Becoming a man after God's own heart, it's a relationship with God. We have the battle over the bride. He's the spouse of Mary. And then we have the revelation of the father. He's the father of Jesus. And so that's no, the pathway. Not a correction, but an addition. Sure, you sure. Know, because actually before he's any of those things, uh, in Matthew 1, you have the first half of the chapter with his royal pedigree tracing yeah. it all the way back to Abraham and David. And then you have the an annunciation of the angel to Matthew. But the angel has a little slip. Uh, angels don't usually do that. But uh, you know from the genealogy that Joseph's father is named Jacob. Mm. But the angel says, Joseph, son of David. Mm. You know, and so it's not because the angel forgot his dad. It's this Davidic dynasty. It's mm. that dignity. And if you look at the dynastic line of David, I mean, you have a few bright moments uh, with Jehoshaphat, Asa, but especially Hezekiah and Josiah. But I mean, it isn't like, well, you're in a good line. He is the very best (laughs) of that line. I mean, he outshines all of the virtues of all of his predecessors. And so it wasn't a slip at all. It was, you know, a penetrating insight. Joseph, son of David. It's like Simba, remember who you are. But you're not little. It it, it seems to me that his premier virtue is that of silence, Mm, uh, the contemplative uh, Mm. uh, dimension and submission, uh, Mm. meek, uh, uh, quiet, Workaday, uh, yielding up my will uh, to the will of of the one who has arranged everything. It's not that he talks a good game. He plays a good game. It's more deed than discourse. And that's sort of convicting for those of us who peddle words. I mean, you you can't imagine Joseph secretly at night uh, writing his memoirs. Uh, I'm going (laughs) to expose this. I'm going to become a bestseller. He's not at all interested in in Joseph, in publicity. He's entirely fixated upon the son and his mother. I mean, that's a lesson, I think, for for men. It's not what you do. uh, It's whom you do it for. Mm. Praise God. And I I think in Joseph, so two greatest saints in all of salvation history is a mom and a dad. And so, and that's part of our message to these guys. We're not asking them, we're giving them some depth of theology, um, but we're not asking them necessarily to to be theologians. We're saying, guys, understand your vocational role. And in that, as a husband and as a father, where you're planted, that's your vocation. And there's everything in that role for you to be a great saint. Right. Um, And sanctity can be found in your home life, just like it was for St. Joseph. So real quick, we've talked a lot about fathers, husbands. What about the person who's not married, the the single man? I mean, how does he engage with this? Uh, Great question. So, um, in my opinion, and in a lot of guys who do come, um, what a way to start Mm -hmm. before you find your vocation to really understand what it is. And people get into marriage, and and sometimes we're working with these guys who've already made mistakes. Sure, sure. And so if we had a a, a dime for every time guys said, I wish I would have heard this 20 years ago. I wish I would have heard this 30 years ago. Oh, my gosh. Knowing that, we should be actively seeking that single man Mm -hmm. uh, and and teaching him the value of 
a vocation. And it seems to me that the success of a marriage of being a father with a person who had a heart for the Lord before they entered into that Amen. is nothing wrong with that, right? There's nothing wrong Very with that. <laughs> we'll be right back for more Franciscan University Presents. I invite you to stay with us. When I first intended to the Brothers of the Eternal Song, I was really drawn to the household because of the older guys, you know, the, the accountability that they had, um, the virtues that they, that they showed. And it's kind of interesting now being the coordinator of the household and, you know, being, being in their shoes and being the one that has, has that influence on the younger guys now. If I want to be the best man I can possibly be, which is living in Christ, I know that I personally don't have the strength to do that. And I know that even if I'm doing all the right things, I'm going to Mass, I'm di praying daily, all the right things, I still won't be able to put enough of myself into those things. I won't be able to insert myself enough if I don't have other guys calling me on to that. Welcome back and thanks for joining us. You're watching Franciscan University Presents, which we record in the ComArt studio here at Franciscan University of Stoomville. Actually, our students this morning are all women, so we're enjoying having this conversation about being a man of God surrounded by wonderful women that are students here at the university, part of our program here. We also have members of our staff or faculty with us, Dr. Martin and Dr. Hahn, and we're really excited again to have Mark Harfield. Mark is part of That Man Is You, and we're speaking about what does it mean to be a man of God. Specifically, maybe we can talk about just this, these images that we've, we've spoken about that one might not normally speak about related to be a man. Uh, contemplation, meekness, quiet, yes. uh, yeah. sacrifice. We, we have this idea of this toxic masculinity, of what does it mean to be a man? But culture doesn't always give us a great idea, does it? No, uh, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah we've, we've gone wrong if we've looked at them. Yeah. You know, Interesting enough, I'd like to take us to a, a moment in the Passion um, <clears throat> where I think authentic masculinity is revealed very, very clearly. And that is, you know, when Pilate brings out Jesus, whom he's scourged at this point, and he says, behold the man, mm -hmm. right? And that's going back all the way to Genesis when God mm -hmm. calls to Adam, behold the man after he's, he's fallen. So Jesus is now taken on the sinful, shameful state of humanity, of, of mankind, if you will. And Pilate reveals him to be, or the Holy Spirit reveals him to be, this is man. And, and I think in that moment, if we look deeper, God's trying to reveal something to us about authentic masculine spirituality mm -hmm. or humanity. That in that moment, that's precisely when our Lord is laying down his life in sacrifice for his bride. Mm -hmm. This is the moment he's gone silent, right? Yeah. This is where he's, if you will, learned from St. Joseph the secret of silence, his, his dad is on earth. And he, in this moment, embraces sa the sacrificial state precisely on behalf of his bride. Mm -hmm. That should teach us something about what it means to be a man, ultimately, right. to lay down our lives. And we hear this from in the scriptures, we hear from John Paul II, that it's only in laying down our lives and giving of ourselves that we actually find ourselves, right? And Christ does it in freedom. Right. Right, and, and he has the freedom to give himself away. And that's actually the first question of our marriage vows. Have you come here freely? Yeah. You know, and so we have to possess ourselves in order to give ourselves away. And so 
Um, that's masculinity. Mm. There's strength right, yeah. in being, having a meekness. There's yeah. strength in shutting your mouth. Right. There's a strength and a power. Um, and there's a, I think there's, there's an admission in there too that I'm not God. That God is yeah. God is God, and I have an inherent weakness as a fallen humanity. I'm going to get my strength through the God who wants to give it through me in my weakness, um, and in that weakness, yeah. in His strength, I'm strong, yeah. and now I can lead. That is such a powerful image, and your evocation of it, I must say, is really eloquent, really mm. quite quite moving. Uh, if it's not the way you present it, then I think we run the risk of falling into a kind of masochism, mm. as if Jesus is really in love with pain and death, and his passivity is contemptible. But in fact, he's not a victim. He's the protagonist. Mm. He's, he's running the scene. He's in charge of, of this uh, ordeal, and he surmounts it somehow by his willingness to submit to it. It's what Teilhard de Chardin has called passive diminishment. He rediscovers himself. He grounds his strength, his omnipotence, precisely through what appears to be the opposite, the contradiction of it, meekness, sorrow, surrender. I mean, that's his true power. By laying down his life, I unleash the power of that life. And that's really, that's powerful. Super powerful. You know, this gives us another opportunity to tie the link or to strengthen it between Jesus and Joseph, mm. uh, because you know he's a carpenter's son, and and Pilate doesn't say you know behold the puppet, you know he's a man, he's fully human, mm. and so his human development has to take place in reality. Mm. It isn't just a charade. Mm. I'm going to pretend yes. to be yes. a carpenter's son. He was an apprentice. His father taught him to be a carpenter, and so he's meek. Joseph is mild. He is silent. He is contemplative. But he's the worker. He is the yeah. carpenter, you know. And before he could get back to Nazareth and resume his work, down in Bethlehem, he has a dream. I've always pictured, you know, Joseph is silent in the Gospels, but he had to share the dream with sure. the Blessed Virgin Mary, you know. And and she's already had apparitions, you know. You had a dream, you know. I can let me tell you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, as though God can't reach me. I mean, he already has. She had to trust him. He had to share it with her, you know. And we're going where? And why? Right. To Egypt? Because of the slaughter of the innocents? You know, the roles that he plays. I mean, we've got to balance the scales by showing that he is a provider. He is a protector. He is a true paternal leader. And that leadership isn't loud. He's not losing his temper. But at the same time, he's dynamic. He's mm -hmm. active. And I can see him engaged in not just apprenticing his son, but helping the Blessed Virgin, teaching him to walk, to talk, to read, to pray, to sing, and all of those things. And mm. the very fact that nothing is recorded of him in Scripture is a, is a lesson for all of us mm. mouthy men, you know, especially <laughs> me, I suppose. But at the same time, he is active as well as contemplative. Right, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's a throwaway line in Luke where Jesus goes down to Nazareth with them and grows in wisdom right. and favor and stature before God and man. That In fact, so he leaves the temple I'm not discrediting the temple in any way, shape, no. or form that he leaves when he's 12 years old. But Mary, in a sense, is calling him to your father's house. That's right. You know, your father and I have been looking for you anxiously. Jesus is speaking about his father in heaven. Mary's helping Jesus in his humanity. There's a mystery here. Yes. But understand in his humanity, 
Joseph's his father, and Joseph is going to teach him. And so the next 18 years, we have nothing, right. but we have Jesus in this father's house in Nazareth, not at the temple. And one of the next times he goes to the temple, it's interesting. I don't want to make a huge statement here, but one of the next times he goes to the temple, he's throwing money tables over saying, my father's house is a house of prayer. Yeah. I think he's also talking about Nazareth. Like yeah, the there's animals. an analogy, there's of this, yeah. this domestic the human and the divine. It, could we uh, revisit Joseph for just mm. a moment? Uh, I remember uh, Father Benedict Groeschel uh, mm. having this vivid uh, uh, image of Joseph sitting at, at the table each morning for breakfast. He's got his cereal, his cup of coffee, and he's having a meal with the Immaculate Conception yeah. and the Incarnation of God. Uh, but somehow he's not unimportant. Mm -hmm. I think we can identify more easily with Joseph because he's fully human. I mean, he's immortal. He's, he's not a saint. Well, he will be a saint, but at the moment, uh, he's not holy without sin, without concupiscence. So we can share uh, in that, uh, that, uh, that state, that limitation. And yet he rises to the occasion. Mary really does defer to him. He brings a certain wisdom uh, to the table. And, and it, must, it must have had a weight, uh, a compelling uh, character that would move Mary uh, mm -hmm. and her son uh, to confide, to entrust their lives to this man. He is the genuine provider. Yeah, and if she's the most blessed of women, yeah. she's certainly not the least beautiful. Yeah. So he also beheld the single most beautiful woman in all of history, right. chastely, but not in a repressed way. Right. Right. I love to look at Marian art and, and identify my favorite <clears throat> portraits of Our Lady and just to have him say, that's how I saw her. Mm -hmm. That's what I woke to. That's what I went to sleep with, you know, and yeah. it's like, whoa. You know, his chastity then suddenly becomes the single most manly form of courage and self-possession and self-donation. Yeah, that, that's really the vision, I think, that men need to have, that women are not to be possessed, objectified. They're not things. They're not property. You know, this isn't a piece of pork chop that you right. consume. I mean, th this is a, a blessed other whom you revere. I thought your point was was good, Regis, in that when you said that he rose to the occasion. That, yeah. but I think don't we need to challenge men more to that to rise to the? We just we, unfortunately, settle for this base idea of what it is to be a man. And doesn't there have to be a challenge, an invitation to something greater, to something more, to something that, that is more life giving, more productive, more? But we just kind of let them stay. There. Yeah, I, there's a. A man recently in, in my local church, he, he made this comment to me, and I really think it sums this up. And he said, you know, Mark, before that man is you, I was just a, I was just a dude. Yeah. That's what he said. Yeah. I, was just a, I was just a dude. I mean, priests are holy. I, I understand that. I go to church on Sunday. But, and he was like, afterwards, I, I, I understand my calling. Yes. Mm. I understand that I have a vocation. I'm called to lead my family, to, to be holy too, sure. you know, and to lead them. And it's... <clears throat> The call to marriage uh, for a man, just like the call to priesthood, is a sacrificial state. And, and so this, this idea of sacrifice, yours is easy for us to kind of see because we, we kind of see, okay, this is what he gave up. People don't necessarily understand when they enter into marriage, like they're entering mm -hmm. into the same sacrifice of Christ to lay down their lives for their bride. And so yeah. we're calling them into that. And we're also showing them in that same light this is the number one issue in our society today, is the family. Right. That every issue you're working for, and there's a lot of them, and they're all worthy, you know, whether it's education or crime or even the economy, it could be anything. 
Uh, it could be church and vocations, all worthy missions to, to give your life for. At the root of all of them, the foundation of all of them is the family. Yeah. And, and John Paul says, you know, the center, the family stands at the center of the great struggle between good and evil, between life and death, between love and all supposed to love. Yeah. And it civilization passes by passes way. Passes by way. And he says the church and society. So the church too. He doesn't say the church passes by way of the hierarchy. Right. He doesn't, he, it's important. Yeah, I mean, the church the is the family of God. Right. The parish is a family of families. But the family Families. is a domestic church. Right. That's right. I mean, th there's an analogy like crystal mm -hmm. at every level mm -hmm. down to the smallest. It's the cell of the mystical body. Mm -hmm. I, I love that image of the door uh, that you invite him to open, uh, but filled with a sense of my mission, uh, the dignity mm -hmm. of these people on the other side. How am I going to uh, proceed? How do I approach? How do I love these people? I mean, that, that's the challenge. And it, it, you, he's poised right there at the threshold, and he has to decide. That's a big moment. That's a huge <laughs> moment. And it's interesting you phrased it like that because very now, take this theology that some may be saying, oh, this is abstract. Really tangibly now, I'm going to take your analogy of the door and say, we've tried to make that, that specific moment like a, a, a decision point, a trigger, that you're leaving your work, you, get, you make this drive home from your car, you're the man, right? And before you walk in that door, yeah. You have to make a daily decision right yeah. then and there. Like, what kind of husband and father am I going to be in that first 10 seconds? Right. Like, who am I going to be? And, and uh, I could get into this later, but my brother and I kind of had this conversation a hundred times. And he's like, Mark, that's one thing changed my whole life. He's like, I, my whole family dynamic changes by how I walk in that door. There's a threshold. If I stay on that phone and kind of push them away right. and, yeah. and continue with my work that's so important, yeah. Or if I come down yes. and greet them and smile and hug them and, and do the same for my wife and ask about their day, the whole evening is different. Right. And I've totally right. changed my whole entire household. Don't take the pressures of work home with you. Yes. You know, I remember having tension and stress when I was a new professor. And my father-in-law was wise enough to say, you know, you're coming home and you're bringing it with you. Hmm. He said, where do you cross? Or I said, University Boulevard. He said, picture that as the Jordan River. You're coming out of the desert. <laughs> right. You're coming into the mm. promised land. Right. And leave all of that yeah, in the I desert. I live in this you know? desert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. We yeah. need the Bedouins. <laughs> so you're leaving the flesh pots, and now yeah. you're entering the desert of yeah. family life. And you have, <laughs> you've got to water it, fertilize yeah. it. Yeah. It's the promised land, and nothing less. Right. And I think, Mark, one of the, when I do promises. weddings, I, I ask the young couple, I said, do you have any idea what you're getting into? And they're always like, yes. It's like, no, you don't. I don't. Right? But isn't that, to, to go back to actually where we started, isn't that one of the graces of yeah. your small groups is that, well, at least from watching my father be a part of it for a long time, um, even small groups before this, but you have men who have been doing this mm. for 50 years and you have men who are just mm. getting married and there's something beautiful in that, isn't there? Yeah, the collective wisdom yeah. and scripture calls for that, right? As, as we get older, we should be leading uh, young men and um, there's an incredible collective, this intergenerational sharing as we would call it. Mm. Um, there's gold. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. So absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. Up next, our panel and our guest will share our final thoughts about becoming a man after God's own heart. I invite you to stay with us. In John chapter 4, verse 20, it says that for he who does not love his brother who he has seen cannot love God for whom he hasn't seen. 
And in our household, we really, I, I personally understand this a lot because when, when I love my brother, I'm loving God. And that's really why I joined Brothers of the Eternal Song because it really pushes me to love my brother and pushes me to love God. Being a part of a household on campus, I found it like nothing else. Having a group of guys you can goof off with, but also um, routinely they push you to be the best version of yourself, growing in, in all the virtues like discipline and charity. What if you discovered a university with unmatched science, faculty, and programs? A place where you didn't have to choose science over faith. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith-inspired, student-focused, research-driven programs leading to satisfying careers in medicine, scientific research, engineering, computer science, and many more science and health fields. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, education is more than just a word, it's a discovery. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment. So Regis, could you start us off? Yeah, you had said something just a, a couple of moments ago uh, that, that struck me. Uh, when you counsel uh, couples that wish to be married, it reminded me of uh, a conversation that Father Julian Carone had. Uh, he's uh, the leader of Communion and Liberation. He had with a, a young couple, they had asked him to celebrate their marriage. And he said, uh, it it became very quickly apparent to me that each uh, thought the other would make them happy, that they would find their fulfillment exclusively uh, in this relationship. And I had to tell them that it won't happen. It can't happen because you are finite and you have only infinite longings mm. and your partner is not infinite. So there's going to be frustration. If you don't find that correspondence with Christ, you're not going to find it with your bride uh, or your spouse. The human heart has this capacity that is greater than the entire universe, and not even the best possible uh, wife or husband can fill that, that hunger, that, that, that longing. So you're already in relation uh, with God, with Christ, and, and that's the relation that I think has to be uh, primary. That has to be first. And then you carry the fruits of that to every other encounter. I mean, to be is to be in relation to someone else, wife, husband, friend, brother, sister, uh, student, uh, colleague. But the primary connection uh, is, is God. Only He uh, can fulfill this deep longing. And maybe that's secretly what, what uh, awakens these men at six in the morning to show up because they're secretly looking for God. Mm. I mean, that's the, that's the deepest nostalgia that we all have. We're possessed by it. We're looking for God. I mean, Chesterton makes the point that even if, even if there's a guy knocking on the door of a brothel, he's secretly mm. looking for God. He's only about three seconds away from grace. Mm. He needs to leave that door and maybe knock on the other door yeah, yeah. behind which his wife is waiting for him. Yeah. Yeah. You're doing a great work, uh, and I, I would encourage you. Great. Thank Maybe. you, Regis. Thanks be to God. Scott. Yeah, I mean, becoming a man after God's own heart is a lofty aspiration. Mm. But, you know, in order to keep it from being nothing more than religious rhetoric or pious jargon, it seems to me the door 
is really crucial because you know it, it cuts both ways. It's not just loving Christ and then loving your bride. It's it's finding in your family a, a kind of decoder ring. You know, mm. um, recently I was walking through my door and I walk into the entryway and you see the pictures of our 19 grandkids and our six kids and you know all of the affections are stirred up and you're just so grateful and mindful of where their needs are and how you ought to pray for them. But I just paused for a moment and it was like a tap on my shoulder where God was saying, you see them with such love and affection. I see all people that mm -hmm. way. And it's like, wow, I'm certainly not a better father than you. I don't love more, you do. You know, and to recognize that he sees all people as his sons and daughters, at least potentially, you know. And it reminds me of another episode that I had, you know, driving, I was riding my bike down to my doctoral course at Marquette on the streets, the, the streets of Milwaukee, and it was early in the morning, and I saw some homeless guy, some vagrant, you know, and he was, he was jeering at this uh, woman who walked by, and I was kind of upset. And then all of a sudden I realized he's already drunk. Hmm. And in that moment, outrage was just replaced by the Blessed Virgin Mary saying, you don't see him as I see him. Mm -hmm. I love him just like you love your children when they're wayward. And I'm like, wow, talk about a vision adjustment. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think to become a man after God's own heart is impossible apart from mm -hmm. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Mm -hmm. You know, and you know that my, my patron, St. Francis de Sales, speaks of the Holy Family as the earthly trinity. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, that's sloppy. No, that's precise. precise. That's our home too. Praise Thanks God. for the good work. Good, good. Mark. Thank you. I, I'd like to kind of try to connect something again that doesn't seem masculine with something extremely masculine and practical. And that's, you know, our call to inspire mm -hmm. as men and, and to be leaders in our homes, but also in our communities and really challenge the audience to, if, if something's striking them here, to try to start one of these at your parish, start a That Man Is You group. And you only need yourself and a core group of guys, but and this is where I want to link this seemingly non-masculine approach of humility. Yeah. Like I, I, I've recently been reflecting on just this litany of humility. And I, I truly believe like the, the litany of humility um, is also a come Holy Spirit prayer. And it, it's in this sense, and this is Cantamalesa mm -hmm. in, in Sober Intoxication. He talks about, you know, like water rushing down. It always goes to the lowest spot. And it completely fills that spot. So water's a great analogy, a divine analogy for the Holy Spirit, right? And so we see that. And so as we humble ourselves, a seemingly non-masculine trait, um, and we know the most humble of all creation is Our Lady, and she's the one filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, not a coincidence, St. Joseph, most humble, leading the Holy Family. And so in this humility, I think that's where God sends us, like the Holy Spirit rushes to those, the little ones, mm -hmm. right? And then in that humility and in that we receive inspiration, that's where the root word comes from, to inspire is the spiration of the Spirit. And in this being filled with the Holy Spirit, that's where we can lead men. And we can lead our, our churches, we can lead our families, um, but it's, 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 it's a coming down from ourselves, being filled with the power of God and the Spirit of God, and from there, that's where we find our leadership. And so that's, that's a powerful image that's been with me lately. That's where I'm trying to do in my own spiritual walk. I'm, I'm trying so hard uh, to, to be smaller and smaller and yet not use that as an excuse not to talk, but use it as the actual base for, Lord, 
help me to inspire people. And I recently read again, Christa Fidelis Leci and, and John Paul II is, he's saying we should be reading those words that the spirit of the Lord has come upon me. The, the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit has anointed me. It's like, I need to put that on my mirror as I wake up every morning. It's not just that the Spirit of God has anointed yeah. Father Dave and Scott Hahn and Regis Martin, but even me, you know, uh, just a regular layman like everyone else yeah. in the audience. And God can do amazing things through us That's in our homes and in our communities. That's fantastic. We'd like to invite you, if you'd like to learn more about today's topic, we have this free handout written by Mark. It's on the power of the Father's presence, and this is yours for free if you simply go online to faithandreason.com or by calling the number you'll see on the screen in just a moment. Mark, thank you so much for uh, your work and your ministry. Uh, I've known you, I probably knew you before you were doing the ministry as a father and a husband, mm -hmm. and it's just a great blessing to be able to spend some time with you. One of the things that I found myself thinking about today is two things. Um, how grateful I am in my own life to have a father who was first a son and a disciple. And, and my dad, who, who loved me enough to form me. And it's funny, I was Googling one time, how do you do disciple your children? And the only thing that comes up is discipline. It just changes it, discipline instead mm -hmm. of disciple. And yet he disciplined me, um, but mm -hmm. my dad discipled me and, mm -hmm. and just a profound gratitude in that in my own life. And, and part of me being a father mm -hmm. is because my dad was a father to me mm -hmm. and, he was a, and, and he was a husband to my mother. But then the other is just over the years um, in ministry, being with men who, who hear this, who hear all the things that we've talked about, and there's a sadness, um, particularly if they're older, as if I've, I've made so many mistakes, I haven't done it right. And, right. and that's one of the things that to end with David, is David made mistakes, and, and I'd like to be nice to say if that was the only mistake he made, but you follow him the rest of his life, and he continued, but he continued to get up, he continued mm. to repent, he continued to start again. So no matter where you are in this mm. journey, uh, the Lord is always inviting you to something new, something beautiful, something wonderful. You are not too old to become a better father, mm. a better husband, a better son. May the Lord pour out his blessings upon you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.